Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. We're joined for this podcast by Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli. Their recent book, Teaching Walkthroughs, is described as a truly unique repository of key teaching methods valuable to any classroom practitioner in any setting. In this podcast, we'll hear more about Tom and Oliver and their fantastic new book. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Hello, great to be here. Hello, yes, thanks for inviting us. Absolute pleasure. Firstly, thank you for both taking the time to talk to us. Before, if we could start with a bit of background on you both. Uh, you've both had really interesting careers in education. And so we'd love to know a little bit more about each of you before we go into the reason we're here tonight. Um, Tom, could you start off by giving us a bit of background about yourself, please? Okay, uh, well, I, I started off uh, in teaching in 1987, teaching physics and in Wigan and I was there for three years and then I moved down to London taught in a couple of comprehensive schools became a deputy uh, I went to an international school in the kind of 2005 with my family for a few years and then I came back as the head of a grammar school which is kind of odd change but I enjoyed that and then I was the head of a school in Islington for a couple of years and then I stopped being head teacher <laughs> and then, I, then, I, then I decided to write books and uh, and and be a consultant so that, that's kind of the background. I've worked in a number of different places and all told about 30 years in schools. And now I just talk about it. Fantastic. And Oliver? Well, I started even earlier. I started in 1976 teaching a mixture of French and PE, which I think, in addition to RE, were the two most unpopular subjects. <laughs> I lasted two years. I ended up in um, a special school. I spent the rest of my career in special schools starting off with what were then called moderate learning difficulty and then um, building up, going down the academic scale to severe learning difficulty. What I found at that stage, my first relationship with research, was that the lower the academic attainment of the students, the higher the educational qualifications of the staff. So you go, you then at that stage, you just go to um, special schools and you get many staff have got or were studying for MAs, uh, MEDs, and we were with educational psychologists all the time. So um, some of the things which young teachers have now rediscovered and has consequently been rebuilt in cognitive science, I just knew it as straight behavioural training in the 70s and 80s, as in um, direct instruction. Um, I ended up being a head teacher of a severe learning difficulty school, and we were nearly neighbours from because it was just down the road from Kegs. Yeah. We just missed each other by a few years. <laughs> I know. I, was, I I sort of picked that. Up, I worked that out later on. It was amazing. It was Did you? Yes. Good place to work. Chelmsford, great yes, place. <laughs> During that time, I um I wrote a couple of books on visual learning strategies and mm. found to my surprise that I was invited to go and lead training courses. And my governors agreed. And then eventually they became so frequent, I asked them whether I could be a part-time head. And they said yes. And then eventually became full-time. And then I was a trainer for I guess around a dozen years. Um, and then I started um, illustrating books and doing posters and working with some really interesting people. I think people who wouldn't normally give me the time of day, but because I could kind of promote their work, I got to work with uh, you know, people like mm. Professor Paul Kirshner and the great Tom Sherrington. <laughs> after a number of smaller uh, collaborative efforts, we, we joined up on a major collaborative effort, which are, which are the walkthroughs. 
yeah and we'll come back to those walkthroughs in, in a few minutes so Oliver there's a real sort of consistent theme in your work and you've you've alluded to it there which is this passion for I think really effective communication um, could you tell us a bit more about a couple of elements linked to this first of all I'm really interested in how your knowledge of cognitive science has has, has really impacted your work and secondly again you touched on it there but your your work in in special education I'm really interested in how the work that you do now you sort of see the relevance of that to uh, the work that people do um, within special education yes I guess prior to that my father was an architect being an architect they're design crazy and they have an opinion about every aspect of design <laughs> from the cut of your shoe to the sort of mug you're holding everything so um, that I hadn't realised the extent at which it kind of coloured my perception. So when I went to special schools, and particularly severe learning difficulty, visual communication was really um, a major strategy. And even though educational psychologists were, were really insightful based on their research, the literature written for adults, for the teachers, was the opposite of what they were doing with children. It was verbose and... and, and, and uh, abstract and full of jargon I mean for example Engelman is a wonderful communicator for children but if you've ever read some of his works on direct instruction completely baffles you yet he's talking about really simple things whether a kid can match squares with circles and you read it and it sounds like sounds like nuclear science anyway so I developed my visual skills working with children and then I wanted to encourage our staff to read more so I bought more books at the staff library and I found I was the only one reading them. <laughs> I've got to do something about it. So I challenged myself and I set about summarising a whole book on one side of A4. You know, I'm kind of that 1950s, 60s grammar, uh, 60s grammar school boy who was brought up on Precy. Mm. You know, it, was a, it was our cognitive steroids. So I kind of applied it with that design aspect. And I thought I kind of really liked that idea because it seemed impossible. And staff found it really useful. Um, and in a way, that's what I was doing. There's so much useful stuff in education, and yet as teachers get busier and busier, they're more and more accountable. Despite the fact that everyone thinks teachers should read more books, I saw this phenomenon on Twitter. I saw teachers who loved research, who bought loads of books, and as a specialist technical word for this, they take a photograph of all the books they bought that they haven't read. Very true. Very true. So I thought there's something wrong with educational publishing and writing in some way. Um, books themselves look just like Word documents. And I became increasingly interested in an area called editorial design, which is the professional study of how newspapers and magazines work. And I've always been admiring of journalists. I mean, from an early stage, I thought educators should create the, the curriculums. But boy, they should give it to journalists to write up. Mm. They really know how to write. Mm. Um, and then as I started investigating it, and visual journalism became more and more um, prominent and central to the design and creation of news, I kind of had a go. I bought loads and loads of books myself on it. I started to eventually assimilate it and then started to use it in the, in the field of education. Mm. Because I seem to have this unusual situation at one i'm old enough and i haven't disappeared two i have the design background and then because of my special needs background i had this kind of decades of educational research so they all kind of coalesced 
Mm. We have this um, maybe a, a tendency to try and um, make content seem as exciting as possible, don't we? And in doing so, create this <laughs> world of overload, which is not good for any children, particularly not those potentially with additional needs as well. And you have your four design principles cut, chunk, align and restrain which i've really enjoyed we had a bit of an interaction a while ago about some podcast posters we were trying to do and you you rather brutally at first had me <laughs> strip back the you know i'd use the daft childish font i'd left no, no space on the page for for white um and and I, as i sort of reflected and stripped it back and stripped it back and stripped it back i was left with this result that i thought gosh that's so much easier to its ultimate purpose isn't just to look like a shiny mm -hmm. poster i want it to have an aesthetic quality about it but i want people to actually read it and find it helpful and yeah your your principles really help with that so can you tell us a bit more about those principles and how you think they relate to the work that we do in the classroom perhaps what are some easy takeaways that teachers could have to make their resources and their visuals better for their pupils so i've been looking what teachers do for four decades and as they've got hold of computers, their mistakes have compounded. They've got worse. As, as they can access every colour, pattern, shade, and typefaces, every <laughs> you could imagine, then their mistakes just, just, just become worse. Um, and so my four principles came from, obviously I knew what the graphic principles were, but I looked at the major mistakes that teachers did, and they became my principles. I mean, the first one, cut. It's the easiest to understand, it has the most impact, it's the easiest to execute. Um, really everything I saw teachers do, a display board, a screen, a document, had too much on there. So um, it has a complex alternative way of explaining it. Richard E. Mayer calls it the, the coherence principle. Mm. You know, but that kind of doesn't quite sing to people, does it? Like cut, <laughs> you know what they're talking about. Yes, so that was, I didn't kind of go into all four principles now, but they just became clear. And when I lead a course, I do a before and after. If you listen to what talk about um, child development, the comparing is the major way that humans learn. You don't have to go to school to do that. You just keep comparing. And so, and I don't think we have before and afters enough. They're so effective. And what I've learned to do now, I show teachers that before, then I show them the after and I say, you tell me why the after is better than the before. Mm. And in the end, they end up discovering the very principle I was going to tell them and they can see how true it is. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And Tom, um, obviously your work as an author is proving very popular in the education community. And like a, a common strand in all your writing is your clear interest in what a great teaching actually looks like. Do you think that schools actually invest enough time in looking at what the evidence is about good teaching techniques? Uh, no, I mean, well, some do. I, I think it's quite variable and I think it's growing. Mm. I think the, the problem with it is that teachers are under a lot of pressure, school leaders are under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of sort of accountability driven imperatives to sort of to do things quickly. And teacher development is a long game. Mm. So people people want cut corners all the time and get you know the the, the digest the quick hits the the best bits so you know mm -hmm. I, i've been in some schools where as i do training all the time well before before we had the lockdown i was going to schools most days most weeks doing delivering training and i could hold up a book 
and say, you know, I, in my slides, I normally have, you know, a, n a number of different books to sort of say, well, if you want to get into the stuff, are my recommendations. And it varies. Sometimes you've got, you know, a good third of people have, have seemed familiar with something. It's rarely more than that. But sometimes it's just absolutely nobody. Like it's, it's like you're the first person to tell them that Graham Nuttall existed or that um, some of them haven't even seen Austin's Butterfly. Can you believe that? I mean, it's like, it's that type of thing. You think, you think you get to the point, you think surely everyone by now is aware of this thing, even though you might not approve of it or, or love it. It's just there. And that's mm. not even true. So, so sometimes I just think, it's almost embarrassing in some situations going on about Rosenshine again. Do you think because like I'm a one trick pony sort of, is that all I've got to discuss? But then I go somewhere else. I think, well, well actually no, because two levels, one of them, a lot of these teachers have still haven't found the time to read what Rosenshine said. So therefore it's worth me helping them get there. But also more importantly, even if they know about it, it's not, yet remotely embedded in their practice because they're just still at that developmental stage of getting to grips with it all. Mm. So I feel like we've got a long way to go. It's sort of, um, and I think there've been some uh, blind alleys, can I say, with things like John Hattie's effect sizes, which, so I think Hattie's got a lot to, uh, to, uh, of strengths and the way he communicates and his whole thing about knowing your impact and all the rest of it. But I think the whole effect size thing has, it was, it was a real sort of distraction and became the sort of hierarchy concept and the measurement aspect is hugely problematic. And I, and I think the people are so excited. There are measurements. We've got measurements in education. <laughs> and um, in fact, one of, the, one of the most ridiculous things I ever saw in Essex, which we talked about earlier, was a head teachers event uh, for all the head teachers in Essex. And there's loads of them, like 75 head teachers in Essex. Second, that's just secondary. Um, and this deputy head was presenting about Hattie's effect sizes. And he was telling us that in his school, when they did their learning walks, if they saw one of the things that they were from Hattie's visible learning, which was their sort of top 10, you would get a, a note in your pigeonhole saying, congratulations, you are, you are using reciprocal teaching, effect size 0 0.77. <laughs> as, if, as if in that moment, <laughs> the effect of that teacher's practice was uh, measurable with a decimal point. And it's sort of, <laughs> I just thought, oh God, you know, this is, mm -hmm. and even Hattie would be like, you know, himself would be thinking, oh my God, that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. So I'm encouraged that there's this wave of interest in things like the research air defense, all these books to do with cognitive science and so on. I think it's great because it's, it's helpful. I mean, teachers teach better when they know the reason why things are supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. And if that's evidenced in some studies, then, then I think it's helpful, but uh, you know, it's, it's, um, and there's a real tension I find, which is interesting between on, on one hand, taking things to sort of, to be law, you know, some, some people go, right, Rosenstein says X, right. Everyone must do this now. It's the rule to the opposite extreme, which people say, oh yeah, well the studies are complicated and you know, there's variability. So and you end up with this mush of kind of, well, do what you like then, you know, Research is complicated, so basically do what you like. And I just think, well, there is definitely a line between those two where there are some good bets, there are some sensible ideas, but they still have to be interpreted. Teachers still have to adapt them. And it's not one of those extremes or the other. So, I mean, that's how I feel it's going at the moment. Mm. Thank you.
we, we did a lovely podcast with Colvin Atwell, who's a head teacher, primary head teacher in London. And he was talking about these dynamic learning communities that, that are so important in schools that, that teachers get the space to just learn continually. And, and what I've seen in my career is very few schools that I've, I've been lucky enough to work in have, have made that space because of the workload and everything else teachers are expected to do. You know, how much do you think that sort of sits on the teachers themselves to take that interest, be proactive, keep reading, and how much is the responsibility, do you think, of the, the leaders to create that space and that time for people, people to do that, Tom? And, you know, perhaps how, how did you manage that maybe as a head in the schools you worked in? I, I think it's obviously a bit of both. But, mm. you know, I, I, I think it's legitimate to be a teacher who who feels that they're that just planning their lessons and you know having a life and sort of getting through the day and doing 20 lessons a week or whatever is kind of you know a lot of work and um there aren't that many other systems in the in the world where we get their class size are as big as ours or whether you teach as many different types of teach especially in secondary you know a, a week to special to, to get on top of the curriculum and so on so I, I'm pretty generous in my attitude towards teachers who've never found the time mm. to do uh, like, you know, read a book about teaching because, mm. because they've got a lot of lot to do. So I do think in a way it comes down to leaders creating a kind of uh, in, well, incentivizing some pioneers and, and you do need every school needs somebody who knows the stuff. I think mm. every, every school needs to have somebody who's connected in to the world or outside who mm. can then feed things in. And I think that's uh, important, mm. but then, culture is is key in this and you can create structures quite i say easily i mean you have to you have to believe it's important but you, I, i've seen this happen in many 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 schools where they have just lifted the whole place through a shift in cpd culture which has just transformed the place from a one where it felt like a place everyone was wanted to leave to a place where everyone was, loved it and wanted to stay yeah. And that, that in a way, is almost the the, first, the art of being. If you if you've got to create a school where you just where people love being there and they and, and are improving, then then you then you're that's the battle won for most things. And how do you do that? Well, you have to you have to look at structures of time uh, timetabling, and I and, and it's amazing how far sometimes you have to nudge people. Sort of, uh, you know, people think they're. Yeah, I ask people, how well, you know, when's the next CPD slot after today? Uh, you know. When I'm in, and they'll say, "Well, yeah, we've done quite well because we've got we've got uh, you know a half an afternoon every half term, and I think that sounds great." And I'm thinking, "Is that all?" You know, <laughs> or or they'll say, "Oh yeah, we do we do you know a teaching learning briefing ten minutes every Friday," and I just think, "I hate those things." Mm -hmm. Why? Because they're I hate them if that's all there is because mm -hmm. it's trips, it's tips and tricks. It's like how can you really do professional discussions in 10 minutes? Mm. You can't, or you can listen as to someone's sort of, you know, buzzy thing of the week. And it just adds to the list of things you're not implementing. That's mm. how I see it. But the good structures are ones where you've got like, you know, once, once every two weeks there's a, a solid hour and it's CPD. It's, it's not even a staff meeting. It's CPD. Boom, 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 mm -hmm. boom. And you could look at a calendar for the year and see like 15, 20, totally prized golden time hours where the staff are going to be working on their professional learning and i think that's really achievable mm. and then you have the celebratory aspect of it so at the end of the year of people are sort of showcasing what they've learned and uh, th this feels part of the culture that yeah we're all on this great journey of professional learning and isn't it interesting what so and so is doing mm. so I, I think that's definitely down to leaders to create that 
Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, you know, it's been very interesting for us as podcasters because one, we've produced a lot more than we used to in the last month and a bit with the extra, a bit of extra time we've had or more flexibility around our day uh, at yeah. times. And also the amount of like listening people have done to it. You know, we, we were sort of, you know, lucky if we had 20 or 30 listens a day and suddenly, you know, you could easily have a lot more than that every day during this time and it's like what it's shown us is that people are desperate to carry on learning as teachers they do yeah. want to have their minds open up and it's like I think this this period of time we're in now has given some people some headspace to to look at things and we've been spoiled haven't we with um, videos and YouTubes and podcasts and freebies and you know so I think I think it's been a really golden time so I think you're right if teachers can uh, sorry if leaders can make that space and build that into the structures and systems of their year then uh, yeah then you're on to some easy wins there so that takes us nicely on to uh, the, the book you've produced teaching walkthroughs and um, can you tell us kind of how that came about and, and what are its aims I guess with my special school background I was also very interested in my interest in journalism is a different way of writing, which was, I guess, technically it's instructional writing. Um, but if it was only instructional writing, it wouldn't be as successful. Tom manages to write informally. It's a, it's a real skill to write informally, yet precisely. Because normally mm. when someone's informal, it's rocky and flabby and takes ages. And yet when you're precise, it's just a little bit staccato and, and as you, you feel as if someone's on shouting at you. Tom's got this lovely mixture. Um, I've also had decades-long interest in visual instructions. Uh, just the other week, I showed Tom a 1948 book I've got called Adam the Gardener. It's a series that used to be out in the Daily Telegraph once a week. And there are, strange enough, there are five pictures of what you do in the garden at that time of the year. Um, and my father used to have a whole range of Reader's Digests. He didn't do knitting or crochet or any of the topics in the Reader's Daily. He just loved the instructional manuals. They're beautifully drawn, the writings, it's neat, the layout's perfect. Um, so I've kind of had that in my background all the time. Sports is pretty good for visual instructions. The Guardian promoted visual journalism. So it's all around. And then putting that together seemed just the right time because teachers seemed ever more, well, with research world, keen to learn and find out more and yet they had less time and the book sometimes didn't seem inviting there were just long narratives mm. you put that all together and um it's just perfect timing mm. yeah we, we had this so we had this fantastic um it was roughly about a year ago it was around about the time of the wellington festival in 2019 and i, I just published this rose and shine book which had just gone totally berserk uh, in in the space of a couple of weeks which has totally blown blew me away because I was really really anxious like because Rose and Shine's principles is well read I think I've got to make I've made this book and everyone's going to read it and um it I, it's so short I kept thinking I mean I'm t almost taking a mick it's like it's I was asked <laughs> to, I was asked by the publisher make it short and I just thought how can you do it justice in, in like a few so I anyway so I was waiting for the kind of all the slagging off reviews saying what is this it you know <laughs> but, Really, I was. I was. I was probably anxious about that. But when it came out, it was like everyone's going, "Oh, thank God, it's short." <laughs> so the fact that it was short was its was its asset. So and that, that had ne I never occurred to me that that would be the case. And so we had this great day where Oliver came around to my house here, and we sat in the back garden, 
and or around the kitchen table actually and we're sort of saying well you know what could you do what could what would what would we put in it which is like in this five steps um and we agreed that five steps was a sensible number and I, we started thinking could you do everything in five steps and then we thought yeah because then all the pages would look the same and then i was thinking well yeah that would work and then that would work and we, we made this list and it was like well bam there it is you know we, were, we realized we had more than even one book's worth we thought well 50 is a pretty decent number so th th then we just sort of had this idea that i would sort of try to write the steps and then oliver would then make the images so this lovely interactive sort of six months of I'd, I'd say i've done a few more he would do them and send me back and to and fro it's just amazing so we originally planned to start it at christmas but we finished it nearly by Christmas because we, we got so into it that we, we kind of like just raced ahead and just knocked it out. So it was, it was really the, one of the most fun things I've ever done. Amazing. Tom, mm. I don't know if you've ever read. There was, um, I think it's off it. Um, George Bernard Shaw once sent um, a friend of his a letter, a very long letter. And at the start of it, he said, I've sent you a long letter and I must apologise. I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and you're also known <laughs> such a Very good. It's almost like it's, it's like a mechanical way of writing in a way, but it's very disciplined. So you just think, okay, um, how do I uh, how do I establish routines in the classroom? So what what are the what am I thinking about? So what, the first thing I do is I think about this, and then I think about that, then that. So you think, well, how can I describe that in five headings? So you write the headings, one, two, three, four, five, and then you think, okay, now I have to quickly describe my heading essentially, and then I've only got this amount of space, so I've got to like, so you you and and, and that discipline of what are the steps? How do I describe the steps? That, that's, that's how the book was written. So it has this sort of need to be tight the whole way. And it really, like a couple of times I would overspill and Oliver would say, no, I can't fit that on. So I'd have to sort of trim it back a bit. <laughs> uh, it, it was just, a, it, you know, recently I was asked to write a chapter for a, a, another book and which is 5,000 words. And it was really hard. I've forgotten how to write like a long thing. <laughs> I, I was thinking that, Look, give me five steps any day. I can do that. <laughs> mm. Well, I've got your, uh, I've got your next project sorted. I've been thinking about it while you've been talking there. You need to do something on heads and deputies' emails to their staff, don't you? How yeah, we make <laughs> yeah. that succinct enough? I mean, I just but the amount of times I've penned things that you know, important information for staff, quickest ways to get it out by email, and I've looked at it. And I thought. I wouldn't read beyond this sort of second paragraph. You'd have lost me by now. And actually, you know, challenge to us all to be more succinct in what we've got to say to people. Um, you know, if, if, I'm, if I was to be brutally honest about my time as a, a school leader, I'm actually embarrassed about some of the emails I've seen. <laughs> I, I, I'm ashamed of them. And they were just ludicrous, just too long, kind of, and sometimes too so, sort of, you know, heavy handed. It's terrible, terrible. <laughs> it's funny how even in a even once we've got an understanding of cognitive science the five to seven bits of information and working memory all that sort of stuff how readily we forget it sometimes when we're then doing training or information for adults isn't it it's yeah quite interesting uh steve back to you i was gonna say that takes me brilliantly in because the one thing i would say about teaching walkthroughs is incredibly accessible book and that's why it'd be really useful guide for teachers and leaders um i'm thinking about in the what section you have some broader categories such as behavior and relationships and then within those um walkthroughs you have the techniques that relate to the category um how are you hearing from people 
that are choosing to use the book within their schools? How are they using it and utilising it for the best of its ability? Oh, it's funny, it's funny you say that because it, we've only just started um, mm. and the book's gone out, but we've produced this website with a whole load of support materials. Mm. And Oliver and I were having this discussion earlier that originally when we made the book, we thought the book's the, ma the main thing and then we'll, we'll make some supporting materials to sort of wrap around. But actually what's happening is that the support material has become almost like our main project now and the books are supporting that's the other way around so we've produced all these slides and videos and stuff and mm. we had a webinar earlier today with another gr a group of about i think there are about 45 people on it from different schools and that's the discussions we're having with people and they are at the early stages of working that out so it's it's not like there is this it's all sort of embedded you know mm. it's really a, an embryonic stage and we've actually put out a survey to the people who've joined us so far to say, you know, which are the ones that you want to start with? Which are the ones you think are the most important 10 of the 50? And we're interested, it's interesting already seeing there's a bit of a range of responses. So we've discussed where we're trying to sort of avoid people saying, like, try to knock out all, as many as you can. Mm. That would be really odd. Yeah. It's better to prioritise two or three and really work on them and get really good at those things. Mm. Uh, of course, there could be different things like you might be working on your behavior here and then your curriculum thinking at that time and then in the classroom, you're questioning. So it's not like you can't do more than one at once, but it's just, it's, they're, they're not meant to be a kind of an, an endless list of things to wade through. No, I think that's a really good point because as I was looking at it, I was thinking, God, this is such a great book. I've got the, the electronic version that I've been looking at on my phone, but just such a lovely thing to dip in and out of, depending on where I am at the moment, people I'm working with, people I'm supporting. Um, last year, we had three NQTs join us, all fantastic, but we did quite a bespoke training program. And I was thinking, gosh, if I'd had this book a year sooner, I really would have used a lot of the materials, I think, on some of those basics but it's not just for nqts either there's some really lovely um, more advanced things around curriculum design so it's a i do think there's something something for everyone there was that an intentional thing in the design that it it, it would be relevant whatever your sort of experience within education yeah oh yeah i mean definitely we we, we, we had that exact discussion that it, who's it for and we wanted it to have a kind of broad range so there's got that that's why and oliver's written a lot of the the earlier sections around the the why the, the rationale for it the whole stuff about instructional coaching so that's sort of pitched at leaders uh and the curriculum stuff we thought a bit about that but we that oliver we might say but that was interesting wasn't it because those things aren't you you don't perform them they're sort of conceptual so how do you draw you know core and hinterland or spiral curriculum it's sort of they're not they're not like in in the in the room but so yeah, we did. We did think that was important to have that in it. Uh, and then one thing I will say, because we just scoped out the fifty odd f f volume two, I think it's going to be just the same as good as volume one. It's just exactly it's another whole set of act activities and a whole another whole set of concepts which are also really important. So when it's all finished as a whole project, I think it will just be quite a su su substantial record of the main ideas that you need to think about and. Um, and that could take you through forever almost in terms of work, working through all those things. Mm. Oliver, anything you want to say there? Yes. Um, in a sense, there's an intersection of two aspects. One is the one that Tom talked about, which is which ones do you select? Mm. So you're curating what's already been curated, that personalization aspect. The other one, um, I've created some posters and PowerPoint slides for those who 
have brought into the training package that looks at how would you use it specifically in in-person training live training how do you use it for online training how do you use it for instructional coaching and there are a number of other ways of um, I hope to introduce you to something called unseen observations. It's a way that teachers can teach their normal day, but have a specified lesson that they had co-planned together with a colleague. And then at the end of the day, you meet up and say, how did that lesson go? So kind of you're your own invisible observer, but it, you've got enough with the discipline of the summer of the walkthrough that you've used to create a shared understanding as you plan gives you the self-same framework to make sure that your reflection is really quite precise and practical. Mm, I like that idea a lot. Yeah, I think the training materials you're, you're providing alongside this are going to be really useful for people. <laughs> Have you thought within that about the role potentially on uh, sort of teacher training and, and, and whether some of these resources and materials could be used within that? Because I think one thing that came out of our conversation with um, Claire Seeley and, and Daisy Christodoudi recently was just whether some of this more up-to-date understanding around cognitive science instructional coaching and so on is is that there in the teacher training is i, I don't know what your views are on that i i think it's really important not to characterize uh, initial teacher training in as, as a sort of homogenous sort of set mm. of things because you know i've met some good people in itt and and so on who, who, who do all of this stuff already and that there's no doubt about that but it's still the case that you meet a lot of teachers who will will tell you that they didn't do it in their trait to training and that's just also a fact so should it be in there of course but it, it it's it's a there's a, a role and in fact what we found is that a lot a lot of our um people buying into our system not well not there's at least <laughs> 10 so far uh itt providers you know a skit or um, a PGCE course and they've immediately seen the potential mm. because it, because what it does is it defines things that you mm. can then talk about and that's one of the main the main things that we keep stressing to people is the reason you need to have this stuff set out is so that so that you can talk about something which you can all agree is the, is the thing mm. so mm. If, if we're if I'm talking to you as a teacher or a leader about say um, check for understanding and I think I know what that means, and you think you know what it means, but actually we're talking about something else different. <laughs> That's, you're constantly misfiring. Mm. But we, the whole purpose of this is that this is what this is a this is one record of what that is. Mm. And so you you keep coming back to it and say, is this the thing we're talking about when you're trying to do it in your lessons? Yeah. Um, and that's the whole point of it. And even if you dis disagree with it and you say, yeah, that's the thing we're not doing <laughs> because <laughs> we, don't, we don't like it. At least you agree that because it's mm. defined. Mm. And actually in schools until, well, there are other books, aren't there? But we think we're adding to the, the, the toolkit for schools to have resources which support these discussions. So it's just a reference, like let's, let's go back to the source. What does it mean? What does it say? Uh, Otherwise, you get this. A lot of people talking about cross purposes. I see that a lot. Even, even like one, one really specific example I'm just thinking of now is I've done a training with a room of about eight people where we talked about cold, cold calling, where the basically information was, you know, it's in Doug Lemov's book, Teach Like a Champion, but none of them had read it. But I, so I did a power, couple of PowerPoint slides about it, told them about cold calling. Everyone's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, three, three or four months later, going back from talking to them, and I'm thinking, well, I'm not. 
are not seeing it. And it turns out that they all totally had different views of what it was. Some thought, well, I want touching up with a barge pole. I don't even like the name of it. You know, it's like, it's a, like right from the first hurdle, people were leaving that room, never planning, never to do it. <laughs> so it's sort of, yeah. Because they didn't, they didn't, uh, we didn't really get to that point of a shared understanding. I, I think that's so easy, you know, to not have that shared understanding. Yeah, I can definitely see the benefits of schools having a shared language around the techniques we're wanting to use. So as we bring things to an end, I'm curious about what each of you have planned moving forwards and uh, how you've each found doing so much of your work via the internet now. Is this something you see yourself sort of continuing to do in the future? Working online is interesting. Um, I hadn't liked a lot of the online stuff that I'd seen, so I wasn't inspired. I remember, for example, some 20 years ago, I was one of the last trainers to use PowerPoint. And I didn't use it, I used, I used Essotent. Because everything I saw on PowerPoint, I thought it was really ugly. And then one evening, I went to see Craftwork in concert. And I saw their magnificent graphics. And in that moment, I thought, wow, that's how I know I'm going to use PowerPoint. So I personally always need to have some other source of inspiration. It, it often isn't in education. I think I can use it in that particular way. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for really interesting ways to make online learning just have an edge. Well, well, I think we've learned a lot. So I feel like until this lockdown happened, I was I was sort of head down in sort of school-based delivery um, and booked quite busily for that. But because a lot of that's been cancelled now, or all of it, I lost like four months worth of sort of, of you know appointments to go to schools. But I've developed you know, a repertoire of doing other things. And, so, and some of them I'm definitely going to carry on. So what I found is, is useful is producing videos or, or, or um, presentations, which people can then just read, watch whenever they like. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I did, I did, I, I was trying to sort of put my rose and shine stuff to bed a little bit thinking, you know, I've done enough of this now. Um, I'll just record myself talking through my material and then it can just be there. And then, oh my God, and then this happened. And it's like, oh my God, it's like so many people have read them watch them because they can watch them whenever they like and it's like okay and i'm obviously i made those free because i just thought well you know i've got it it, it was hard i didn't know how to even not make them free in a way i just (laughs) thought i'll I'll stick them up there and then so i just think so that that's been interesting so i'm quite interested in developing that but through the walkthrough so actually oliver and i have got this and with john cat we formed this sort of partnership around walkthroughs and it's it's going to become quite a big deal for us it's it's become it's we've got projects that people are talking about in some you know um developing country scenarios um we've got lots of schools and skits and mats losing it as the the main the core resource for all of their cpd and that kind of thing so we're, we're keen to see how that develops but i am what i'm what i'm particularly keen I'm, I'm sort of doing some face-to-face training when that comes back in but what i'm particularly keen to carry on doing is to go into schools where I where I have a I have about five or six schools and colleges where I have a kind of relationship with them and I go there a lot and I get to watch lots of lessons and for me that's the thing I miss at the moment is engaging with teachers really close up mm-hmm. I love that I love working it's one of my favorite things to do is get to know a team of teachers uh, what observe them and talk to them about what they're doing and help them and 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 that for, to carry on over over several months and and you really see people improve I love that. And it's, it's just so interesting. And also you get to see all the kids interacting and the learning. I love seeing at the back of a lesson and seeing how the learning is all happening. Mm. Um, so 
that and that's in a way why I'm able to sort of write this stuff because I'm seeing it from the students' perspective. What's it like to be in the back of this class? The teacher's performing their socks off at the front. <laughs> but the kid at the back is like going, what the hell's going on? And it's, it's <laughs> that disconnect between the teacher's performance and the kid's learning, which I think is like the, that, right at the crux of what we're all trying to, to do here. Mm-hmm. So, that, that, yeah, I, I, I just think from now on, it's going to be more of a mixed economy. Mm. But I tell you what, if, I, if it wasn't for walkthroughs, I don't know what I'd be thinking. I, it's such an exciting process, and we've got this great uh, dynamic between us all. and. Um, it's fun. It's a really great project to be involved in. I think it's a wonderful project. And I think your passion and your collaboration has created something really special. But coming back to the word practical that was used earlier, just really, really useful, whatever your role is in a school. So congratulations. It's a, it's a great achievement. And it's a, it's a start of something that's clearly going to keep growing for some time yet. So thank you and thank you for coming to talk to us about it. it's been really interesting it's been a pleasure tonight thank you well thanks for inviting us yeah thank you very much nice to meet you too Deputy, the deputies.